Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Otari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man whose chicken farm is not going very well. I am the Adam Glass, but I've got all these eggs. Yeah, right. Most of them are rotten. Um, I the reason I had a pause, we were we were trying to figure out what to to say is like I I wanted to talk about the chicken farm, but there were some other things you could talk about, uh, and then I remember that chicken farm is like. At least, as far as Dolly Parton movies are concerned, is a euphemism for for a whorehouse. <laughs> and I was like, "All oh, right, like, do I want to? I don't understand. Like, I don't know if this is going to go well or not." I I actually forgot that that is a euphemism in the best little whorehouse in Texas. Yeah, not a film I've seen a lot actually. I I think I've seen it like on TBS like once or twice probably. I, I definitely know it. I have to assume that I was not allowed to watch movies with the term whorehouse in the title. Right, right. Well, that that checks out. Yeah. I think the major problem was actually that uh, Burt Reynolds plays a cop in the movie, and I was only allowed to watch the movies where Burt Reynolds played an anti-cop. Right, right. I mean, that, that's uh, the 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 only good ones, really. Uh, yeah, uh, are ones where he, no one basically needs to watch ones where he's driving and the bandit. Yeah, really. Frankly, you know, you know, there he was in another movie. Like I've never seen it, but like I was looking up Smoking and the Bandit the other day. Uh, yeah. And he was in another movie that has almost exactly the same plot line. Is it Smokey and the Bandit 2? Pat, before we get into our movie this week, I do want to talk about it. Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lost in criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going and get access to some bonus content. We do a non-criterion film each month. Our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch, uh, usually from a list I put together, sometimes from lists that our supporters suggest as well. And we have a lot of fun talking about non-criterion we films. We do. Uh, though, though occasionally films that end up in the criterion collection through no fault or of our own, we don't make those decisions. I do. And they're always surprises because also Pat and I don't know enough about this business to be able to really foretell what's going to end up in the Criterion Collection with all that Very much. True. Yeah. <laughs> we, we have no idea what's going on. Anyway. I mean, I, we've done. I, I wonder, like, is it a surprise to other people or is it just because I don't think you can really read the tea leaves on that, right? Like, not really. I, I think I think other people. uh no more about there have been on. lists I put together in the past where we're like that shit's going to be on there next month, man. What are you where doing? someone someone has said in the comments that they suspect that huh. uh, such and such film would be in there soon. Um, and uh, maybe they it wasn't the one that won uh, any of those times that that happened. So whether or not they I have no idea because I can't remember what movies they were. It doesn't matter. Anyway, I. Uh, that $1 gets you access not only to the vote, not only to the current bonus episode, but the entire back catalog bonus episodes. There's over 70 over there right now. Uh, it's like a whole other podcast uh, in which Pat and I just watch movies of varying quality. Sometimes really good ones, like uh, Del Toro's Pinocchio, which is one that was added to the Criterion Collection shortly after we did our bonus episode. Uh, sometimes really bad ones, like uh, the Beatles homage film... Uh, <laughs> Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band. Um, homage is the wrong word there. Homage implies someone cared, 
Uh, yeah, exactly. I, 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 I don't. Uh, that movie, man. To this, like, even now, cash I, in. Haunts cash me. in. I think is the only good word. Like they, they, like, yeah, yeah. like it, cash in, but like in the maybe the weirdest way I've ever seen. Like, there's something like yeah. deeply, like, unsettling about that movie in a way that is almost hard to describe. Like, the more I think of, every time I think back to it about it, like, I yeah. feel like I'm having a stroke. I feel like it's doing something <laughs> to my brain. Like it's like, oh, this yeah. isn't healthy. Yeah. You shouldn't think about that. This is cursed knowledge. Um, it's like a mimetic parasite. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, digging exactly. into your yeah, exactly. Digging into your lizard brain. Yeah, it, it, it's uh, really ups- It's really upsetting. Like I just don't think about it. Just try not to. We should probably put it out of our minds. Uh, yeah, well, we got before move we on. hurt ourselves. Uh, yeah, yeah, let's go. Uh, a little above that $1 mark at $5. We'd like to thank folks who can afford that on air. Uh, it really helps keep us going. Uh, so thank you so much to our $5 supporters, Andrew Jarrett, Chris Otto, Eric Coronado, and Stephen Goldmeyer. Above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note once a month, and mail those off to our $10 and above supporters. And we also like to thank them on air. Thank you so much to Nina Bajnak, Jason Westhaver, Patrick Yako, Adam Speakerman, and Tracy McGrath, our $10 yes, thank you and all. above supporters. If you want to see those postcards without committing to that $10 mark, you can head over to redbubble.com. But you should commit to the $10 mark. Let's be very clear here. <laughs> you could. They're more fun. I mean, you could just use the, the You get them in bu- person. Yeah. They get little messages on them. Um, yeah. They've got postage stamps the all over them. You know, postage marks. You get the ones that Redbubble takes down almost immediately. This is true. We, the, the response time on those ones is quite fast. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, Redbubble has removed a couple of the postcards over the years, and I do put them up on a little and, delay yeah. so that our $10 supporters can uh, enjoy them first. But you can buy them as postcards, as greeting cards, uh, as stickers, some as buttons, some as T-shirts, a good mix of stuff. Uh, and mostly, you can go see the entire collection of Pat's art. Uh, well, as much of really it as fun. can be displayed. Legally. Yes, as much as legally can be displayed. I mean, like, honestly, I should probably have at some... Like, it's a weird thing because I don't actually care about the monetization of it at all. I should probably just, like... Right. Make a... Have a website. Yeah, make a page yeah. on the website or something that has has that. Like, just dump them all on there because, like, I, if people want to look at them I'm, or print them, I don't really give a shit. Like, if you want to yeah. if you want to go through the hassle of trying to get them printed, go, go you know, be my guest. Have at it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. they're they're oh. they're they're free for the taking in many ways thank you so much to everyone who has purchased anything from the uh red bubble thank you so much to everybody who support us on patreon and thank you for listening yes thank you so much pat this week yes. we get to watch our third third number three roman polanski film the third it is one. also roman polanski's third film they are showing for them some reason, to us in order yes. which is weird <laughs> um very spaced out, this but is, in order. Yes. This is actually the last time they'll be showing us Roman Polanski movies in order. Uh, I was really hoping, like, the way you were film. talking, I was like, is he about to reveal something really, truly blessed? This is the last <laughs> no, Roman no, Polanski it is not movie our, we're ever going to watch? It is not our last Roman Polanski God damn it, movie. Adam. It is the last. It is the last one in order. Uh, we still have uh, three on the list right now. Rosemary's Baby. Uh, which we'll watch in a little over a year. Okay. Test, which we'll watch shortly after that. Uh, maybe a nope, not immediately after. Uh, <laughs> Tess, Tess, which we'll watch a year after that. 
uh, his adaptation of Hardy's Test of the Ubervilles. Uh, and then uh, about six months after Tests, we will watch his adaptation of Macbeth. Uh, and then there's no more Polanski. Thank the Lord. So we are now halfway through our Polanski. Now, mind uh, you, that could all change because this is an endless thing we're on. They could add more Polanski later. It's true. I do you don't think they know. are maybe? Do you think they have grown more gun shy about adding more Polanski? I I hope the Criterion Collection has. I hope that there are other people, but I also know, as we've discussed with every Polanski we've discussed so far, uh, movie people really love Polanski in a way that we do not. Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, every Polanski makes me more unsure about why. Not yeah, even from like yeah. not, putting aside, putting aside like everything that we know about Polanski. Generally speaking, I cannot fathom what is so appealing about Polanski movies. Like I can't, like cannot process. Like I get the like. You know, not to start just lead directly into the podcast that we're about that we're going to do today, but like, yeah, I think technically fine, like technically good. Like, I don't see like there's not it's not like they're like technically awful or something like that. But like, I derive no value from the stories he tells, like none. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, this this week's movie is Cul de Sac from 1966. It is not only Polanski's third movie; it's the second he made in Britain. Uh, Knife in the Water was made in Poland. That was his first, which we watched uh, a few was years po- ago. Was, when we watched uh, Knife in the Water, was Knife in the Water subtitled? Yeah. It I had totally to been, forgot it was in, that. It was in For Polish. some reason, in my yeah. mind, it was in English. I don't know why. Like, yeah. I, I somehow mentally processed it as being an in-English film. Like, I, At least I remember it that way. It's weird. Because we were watching... They've, they've got those, those the bonus features on this one. And like... yeah. They're in it. They're in Polish, and I'm like, "What the fuck? Like, was this in? Was well, this in Polish when we watched admittedly, it?" Knife in the Water was ago. long enough ago. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was like spine two fifteen. Yeah, it was a so, very long time ago. Uh, it's it's just like one of those things where you kind of like rewrite that. things in your head, where it's like, "Oh, yeah. I mentally rewrote it in my head to be like." I wonder if I do that to a lot of movies, where like, maybe I just sort probably. of mentally replace the spoken dialogue with the things I read. It's weird. Wouldn't it surprise me? Yeah. Uh, Repulsion was only about a year ago, and that was in English, of course. Yeah, that one. Yeah, um, I remember that one being in English, um, and I remember that one being... I mean, I did prefer that one over Knife in the Water. Like, I would say that we... I The statement I made about each one making mo- me more uncertain about what's going on with film people mentally uh, is also caveated by the fact that like each one we've watched i have liked more than the previous one yeah like i found repulsion more interesting and more engaging than knife in the water because i found knife in the water to be absolute trash for my mind absolutely like, i hated knife no in the water. i i agree repulsion had that. some redeeming elements this one has more yeah. redeeming elements than, than repulsion does this is i think there are interesting things going on here. yeah i i, really, I, I yeah. do too i just like i'm not sure that like how vaunted Polanski is by film criticism as a whole doesn't seem to match with the things I've seen. Does that make sense? There seems to feel like there feels yeah. to me like there's a misalignment of how good it is versus how well, like how well received and talked about it is. 
if that makes sense. Have you ever actually seen Chinatown? No, I have a copy of Chinatown that has never been watched. <laughs> I keep meaning to. I, I have think... heard Chinatown is quite good. I am interested Chinatown's in Chinatown. Chinatown's a good noir. Yeah. Uh, just watch the Pinky and the Brain episode that parodies which, which i have seen yes I, I have seen that yeah. it is what made me get a cheap copy of chinatown when it showed up in front of me yeah it's the only polanski um, i actually own because i was like well it's cheap and i have heard i should probably watch this yeah um rosemary's baby and macbeth which both are 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 coming up for us are uh I've heard really good things about his adaptation of Macbeth. Rosemary's Gravy is a great genre film. It's it's phenomenal little horror thing. Uh, I've seen Bad Polanski, certainly. Um, <laughs> the Ninth Gate, uh, starring Johnny Depp, uh, is just a really dumb genre movie <laughs> from 1999. Right. Uh and it's not to say that like yeah. good directors can't make bad films. My my point is that like right, right, right. my point is more that like mentally for me when I see these movies, I don't understand on a core level. Because bear in mind, we watched Knife in the Water. I didn't really you basically told me the information that I know about Polanski in Knife <laughs> in the Water. Like I don't I don't know anything. I don't because I at the time we were pretty early in the podcast. I didn't really pay attention yeah, to that yeah. kind of like I didn't even really know to pay attention to this kind of stuff. And you reveal it to me, and then we did a bunch of reading. And, and since then, we, I've, I've paid a lot more attention to it, uh, to that kind of stuff in Hollywood. And be, yeah. obviously, as we've gone through more directors, I've become more and more acutely aware of how uh, rife with, with these kinds of things Hollywood can be. Um, but, like, basically, Knife in the Water, you, like, like it wasn't entirely, like, I was aware, like, vaguely. You know what I mean? It was like one of those yeah. like back of the head things where you're like, well, I know he did something bad, but I don't know what it was or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, and then you kind of like, we walked through it. Um, so like Knife in the Water wasn't even really the beginning colored by that. And I hated that fucking movie like a lot. Um, like, <laughs> right, but just right, like right. on its, on its own merits. It yeah, on its own merits, I yeah. hated that movie. Um, to, to be fair, we also hated Knife in the Water on the merits of the bonus features in Knife of the Water, in which Polanski was a complete jackass. Yeah, yeah, about that's, true. that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, and like we kind of keep that's a thing. That's sort of a running theme at this point, right? Like, yeah, like, and like you know, when you watch this movie and you watch the bonus features in this movie, um, like this one's not as conde- like not as damning of Polanski in general terms. Uh, in the bonus features because yeah some of it's more about the people he's working with it like the, the way they're acting but like yeah it just it, it does seem like pretty much everyone who worked on this movie was like a bad was person at their wits end yeah it is like yeah it was a kind of a it seems like this whole thing was a mess um the female lead in this movie like nearly died Francois Doyle-Lick yeah. playing Teresa yeah she Out in nearly the, died because she couldn't swim she couldn't swim and it's like yeah that feels like a thing you would care about. Yeah. Um, but like, and he did. Polanski cared that she almost ruined the shot. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, and so did his, so yeah. did um, what's his name, um, Lionel St- uh, Stander as well, right? Like, it seems like they were both <laughs> yes. assholes to her, like in, in their own special way. Um, yeah, yeah. Even Polanski, even Polanski talks about Stander being being an asshole to her. Like that's a being uh, asshole to her. Yeah. It, uh, and just just a jerk in general. But like that's the thing, right? Is that it comes from like, like it's more of like a real like 
It's more of like the little things, right? Because like, for example, yeah. like, well, A, you get into like the portrayal in general, right? Like Polanski has a view of women that is very, very specific, right? Right. Like it is a carryover. All three movies feature the, ex- relatively speaking, the exact same perspective. Uh, they're yeah. different and versions of it, but they all come from the same place. Interestingly, with the making of this movie, Polanski had recently gone through his first divorce. Uh, that checks out, uh, right? Like that Polish makes sense. Actress, right? Basia Kwiatkowski. He would meet Sharon Tate, his second wife, because they were married. <laughs> That's just its own its own crazy thing. Is that Polanski was married to Sharon Tate when she was murdered? Because uh, the world's weird, right? right. Um, but yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, he wouldn't meet his second wife until uh, the next movie he made. So, so this is Polanski after the dissolution of his first marriage uh, while he's between marriages. But bearing so in mind that maybe Polanski that has seems to have, but, but, but Polanski seems to have the same perspective in the first two movies. Oh yeah. No, like, yeah, no, we definitely, it's like we get this sort of yeah. like perspective of like women are both are fickle. They're dumb. They are manipulators. They use sex to get what they want. And men all must, and all men are like doomed to fight for dominance in in all their relationships. Yeah. Like it's well, it's that every single fucking movie so far, and it's starting right. to become a very bit true in knife in the water. Point. Yeah, very true in knife in the water. Well, very true here. Yeah, the repulsion does not have of... that because it doesn't have a man in it. It doesn't really have very like it does well, a little bit. But yeah, I'm trying to remember repulsion. Right. Repulsion is the terrible story of a woman who de- demands autonomy. Right. 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 Uh, and how that, how that ter- like destroys her or whatever. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to remember um, repulsion. I mostly put out of my mind. I didn't really. It's, I remember hands and a yeah. wall and some stuff like that. It's a lot of like going crazy. There's some really imagery, you know. There's some great horror movies yeah. uh, imagery in there. Anyway, um, you yeah. say great. I anyway. say. Eh. I don't like horror movie yeah. imagery. Anyway. So. <laughs> uh, so far, all of his movies are about somehow only one person. How how basically every human interaction, every human relationship has to have one person who is the dominant force of right. that relationship. And, and, and the sort of which struggle is, for which the is a, dominance and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, which is just a bad read of human relationships. Right. And, but. and, and it, like and I can't help but like start to like find myself in a weird place with it where it's like well like somehow like film criticism and film stuff like seems to like that. Like seems to like that like as a sort of philosophical underpinning to the storytelling, right? Like I guess because it creates a lot of dramatic tension, right? Like but it's but the problem is is it's so far beyond the like the way I view human relations, it's a little bit hard to like to reconcile, right? Like you're like, I don't like this. Yeah. This is not yeah. for me. Right. Right. Um one hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, that becomes a bit of a problem, right? Like I, I and 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 you know, I, I don't know how we're supposed to reconcile that, like in some way. Like we watch directors who like produce films with like sort of philosophical underpinnings we don't like. That's seven All the time. times. Yeah. <laughs> But the problem is, is like that we kind of ninety nine percent of the movies we watched. For yeah, this. unfortunately. Right? Um, but like, yeah. but also like beyond that, like because his movies are so intensely about that in many ways, right? Like they they don't. Yeah. That seems to be the only driving force of the narrative in many times, like in reality. 
Yeah. Then like yeah. It, it's a little bit hard to look beyond, right? Um right. You know. Yeah. Without without yeah, that tension there's literally nothing is going to happen in this movie. Like it, it, without that it literally the movie has nothing, right? That is the thing of the movie. Um so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and the descriptions of this movie that uh all the characters are playing like mind games with one another isn't really accurate either. They're all just asserting dominance. No one's like right messing with anyone to assert dominance. They're just asserting dominance. That's, right. It, that's it, all they're exactly. doing. It's there's no there's no mind game. It's all physical, honestly. Yeah, it, it's, it's like you know, it, it, and even like its portrayal of like it, it becomes really fascinating because like it it, it sort of resorts to and like it resides in in like hyper stereotypes, right? Like it, it's like yeah. hyperbolic in its stereotypes, right? Our our big our big guy who has dominance is a big dumb guy who right. doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground in many ways, but has the power right. to exert influence. And then the other person, the other two people fighting for dominance are hampered by one of two things: either they are an effeminate man, which is the hallmark of like an incapable of like asserting dominance, or or a woman, which we all know they can't be dominant. Of course not. <laughs> like Polanski, at least in Polanski's world, that's like that's basically all we need to know. Um, well, a dominant woman would be even worse. So, right, well, and right. and she's in, in uh, many ways that's one of the problems of like that Polanski tells you is one of her hallmark problems of the character in this movie is she's too aggressive. She's too like right. in charge of her own life. That makes her yeah. a bad woman. Um. Yeah, as a fun exercise. Yeah, something I was thinking about after watching this movie. Certainly not what Polanski wanted this movie to be about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I made a note. Let's explore Dicky as a metaphor for Polanski. Uh huh. Holding hostage, George representing the entire film culture, uh-huh. a coward who can't do anything. Uh huh. Desperate to be loved by a beautiful young woman. Uh huh. Uh, so, so I will propose uh, a different so, metaphor that it, that is probably a little bit more realistic <laughs> later. But yes, let's go for it. Okay, okay. So, so uh, yeah, he's got this. Uh, he's got this militaristic hold. Now, Polanski obviously doesn't have a military militaristic hold over the film industry. No, uh, the film industry—they are enthralled uh, by him, which unfortunately does right. break down your analogy relatively quickly. I'm Very sorry quickly. To tell you. There are there are there are parts. Um, I mean, one could argue that Polanski is an outsider breaking into the film industry, right? Um, he's coming from Poland. He's making uh, his first three films aren't even really all that uh, financially successful, if they are at all. Um, his first two films in England um, are financed by soft corn producers. I did not know that. Uh, did I say soft corn? You did. Uh, soft porn. But yes. I like it. I, Finance, I like where yes. this is headed. Financed by soft porn producers. Uh, so um, after this, uh, he makes a vampire comedy that presumably is the same production people. Um, and then I will admit that the vampire comedy might be the only the only Polanski film I actually am interested in watching. Like on <laughs> yeah, a core it level, seems... it, like every picture of it, I'm like, this seems like it could be fun. Now, is, will it be ruined by Polanski? Maybe, but 
the, yeah. the, the yeah, core it, principle it definitely of it seems, seems like fun a, to me. It's a it's a a parody of Hammer Horror, seemingly right. So which is which is a funny like, to me is just like you're already starting <laughs> yeah. with like pretty good uh, core material there. So yeah. yeah, starting with Rosemary's Baby, he's basically no longer playing with genre and just playing within the confines of genre, I think. Right, right. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair I mean, to Rosemary's I've Baby. I've never seen Rosemary's but. Baby, but the, the flip side of that is is my my impression of this has been that, that like, and I think this is not just true of him. This is true of multiple um, people, like, in the industry in general. It's like once you've sort of established your street cred as the person who, who defies the genre, then you can just start doing things in the genre and everybody will just take it as being in defiance of the genre does that make sense yeah and again yeah. i don't think this is an exclusively him thing this is a a a i, I think, feel like this is almost a function of the of the um film system i think that like is, once you've done that once you've established that you don't play by the rules and you are an outsider yeah. to the genre talking about the genre you never you don't you no longer actually have to be outside the genre and talk about the genre because you have become right. a part of it and then you just like kind of just get to do that yeah. forever uh, at the risk of alienating some people, I think that might be true of, say, Brian De Palma's career. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I do. I legitimately, this is like, this is no longer about yeah. Polanski. This is, I think, a yeah. thing that is true, broadly speaking, in the industry. Because what seems to happen, right, is you become, you, by operating sort of slightly askew from the genre or whatever, you revolutionize it. You change it. You make it something new. And now that now the genre includes you, you are encapsulated within it, which would mean you would have to move further outside of it, right, in order to be separated from it. But most people don't. Most people just stay at the level they were when they were sort of defying it. Thus, yeah, from then on, operating within it. It's definitely possible to right. keep moving outside, but you're going to have to get more and more extreme. And there's a lot of debate about whether or not the culture and everything is prepared for that, right? Because... It being a, co- a, a a commercial enterprise means that like going too far outside, you've already pushed the boundary. If you push the boundary further, it becomes a serious question about whether or not you're even like you're even culturally acceptable right, anymore, right? right? right. Uh, yes. I, I look at somebody like Cronenberg or somebody as somebody who maybe has not yeah. ever. He sometimes falls into the trap, but doesn't always, in the sense that he's just so far afield in many t- cases that like it's sometimes quite disliked you know what i mean like yeah like that that willingness to keep pushing the edge of it means that sometimes you're going to make things that the, the the culture writ large is just not ready for right but yeah sorry there's there's a bit of a diatribe but like i i think polanski probably falls into that trap because i think a lot of directors do frankly yeah yeah i think that's fair um so <laughs> So back to my dumb metaphor. Uh, I think there is a point in the film where George and uh, where George and Dickie come to a, to al- almost come to an understanding, and that's during their their drunken uh, argument on the beach when the plane flies over and Teresa goes out in the water. The scene in which Francois Dorleac almost drowned filming because she couldn't swim, right. uh, and there was a riptide. And the water was like twelve degrees, yeah, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, <laughs> all the ways we almost uh, killed our actors. Yeah, um, I guess all of this to say, what it means is that 
uh, if George represents the entirety of, of the film production community, uh, all of the people who love Polanski, uh, the only way Polanski will be stopped is for them to all murder him. And I will settle since an infinite amount of people holding a gun does seem impossible. I will settle for just the 100 people who in 2009 uh, signed the letter in support. Right. Of, just, uh, that, of that still boggles my mind. So, that that, that uh, so, existing is just a, so a I will, fuck. Even that's too many. So if just Wes Anderson and Tilda Swinton. Like I can't. Uh, like, I'm always. I'm always finally fa- murder Polanski. Right. I, I'm always fascinated by that because, like, that that thing always me. I can't ever help but feel like, did they themselves sort of have a metaphorical gun to their head that made them feel yeah, like this was a good idea? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, I think. Yeah, <laughs> people respect him for whatever reason. Uh. I don't. Um, and, you know, I think. Chinatown is well respected and it's good. Uh, if you can. <laughs> we've talked before that <laughs> I think I think if you were to watch Chinatown and this is kind of how I feel. Uh, the problem with it isn't necessarily Polanski. It's uh, Jack Nicholson as the sort of Jack Nicholson we don't right. Like. So th- there's a whole other <laughs> level of problem so, here, which is yeah. like we're we're really in the woods as far as like man, like I don't like so many things that are going into this that like right, will right, it will right, it be right, even right. tolerable? I'm not sure. Okay. Anyway, what is your what is your oh, metaphorical? Okay. So uh, my, my metaphor is, is a lot movie. more is a lot more straightforward. Like I feel a very like, like we're in the bonus features the the. Older bonus feature: the interview with Polanski when he was yeah. still roughly of age with making this movie. Um, mm-hmm. He talks a lot about his personal history and the Holocaust and all these other things, and it's it really seems like a fairly simplistic metaphor. But like, I don't think it's necessarily a direct mo- metaphor for the Holocaust per se, but like probably to a certain extent addressing that sort of feeling of helplessness that like people have in face of like, well, you know, very brutish very uh, aggressive force yeah. which is the, the Nazis no, I think... right like this being a relatively straightforward analogy for the you know the Jewish people or 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 even like Europe as a whole against the Nazis is not they I mean and, and even sort of for the end of the world of the war where it's like well yeah eventually the gun gets pulled and, and shoots the shoots yeah. them but like mostly cowed throughout most of the time right like in many ways right with the exception of certain groups i mean if you think about like the way the 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 british reacted to the nazis for a very long time yeah is very akin to this um yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't necessarily go so far as to uh name this as an analogy for uh the nazis and uh and polish jews or or jews at writ large but definitely his background maybe at least him personally that feeling of helplessness is, that he felt as a kid yeah would read in this, yeah, in something, this movie i think yeah the the uh the dominance as an aspect of manhood right like, it's definitely something right and it seems i think that he yeah. carries through his entire life yeah. right is that like that the like in many ways i think it's pretty easy to understand that every single one of those men who 
is being in that relationship he's mostly talking about himself and his feeling of a lack of uh the ability to assert control or and it's like who exactly is george at any given time is a bit nebulous but there is a definite feeling that like in some ways polanski is talking about himself in his own life uh in right these these movies about this yeah in that regard, this movie did at some points remind me, George reminded me of uh, Dustin Hoffman's character in Straw Dogs. Yes, absolutely. Um, 100%. Yes. Yeah. Whereas Straw Dogs is framed as an ideological pacifist. He's not really. And we talked about that extensively. Right, yeah. He never really presents that as a, as a concrete ideology he holds. He's just a coward. And George is just a coward, too. Right. Um. And uh, and one does not need to assert violent dominance to not be a coward, right? Uh, that is the theory of straw dogs and the theory here. Well, and it's uh, sort of the root. Not. You you, it's a theory we encounter a lot, especially as we engage with like Western media as a whole. Is a sort of yeah. dominant concept that like violence equals manhood, like and and yeah, you know, there's a direct uh, um, corollary there. Uh, but yeah, I think definitely, um, I think definitely you're right to point out that Polanski's childhood, uh, having to flee Poland, right. Uh, having his father sent to the concentration camps. Um, well, and especially if you take in the, the idea of like his father is, you know, the person that like you sort of establishes your sort of in in this sort of like bad psychology and sort he, of thing your father is the sort of manly figure you're supposed to model yourself after and then his gets taken away and doesn't like fight back or whatever right you get that classic right sort right, of, right oh why this is why i'm all why i don't understand i struggle with my manhood because of this this thing or that thing and he talks about how he was basically left on his own and then after the war when his father was freed and uh, the family could get back together. He chose not to. Polan- well, Polanski and like, and there's to. a lot of other things that come uh, in there, right? Because bear in mind that when that he remarried, his father, his his mother died. Polanski's mother died in Auschwitz. She is a victim of the war. Yeah. His father decides to remarry, and you see a sort of like he decides not to live with them. His father and his new wife, and you know, it's not like. Not to play like shitty pop psychology, but right. like it's not that hard to like follow the through line on establishing uh, Plancy's view of women and a lot of other things like that through these like events that we're kind of told directly about, right? Like he's got this kind of he seemingly doesn't like his father's new wife, perhaps sees her as a like insufficient kind of like false replacement for his real mother betrayal of his real mother you like again pop psychology shit right like just real basic like um but then if you follow that as a through line into the, his work and like the way he thinks about women in his films it's not that big of a leap right it's not that hard of a a thing to do in your head it's kind of it might be shitty pop psychology but it does seem to to check out this is the first opportunity we've had to learn more about Polanski's childhood. And he shares some about his childhood, right? It's the only reason we 
we learn anything about it. That certainly doesn't excuse oh, my yeah absolutely some of totally, his other 100%. issues. But right? it is an interesting but. window because it starts to like it doesn't. It's not an excuse at all. Like I mean, it just doesn't even for like him just being shitty to his actresses and stuff. No, it's not an excuse for any of that, uh, or for like even yeah. like making shitty like making characters that like these sort of very false stereotypical female characters in his film right like i mean it doesn't excuse any of that but it is an interesting insight into like oh you start to kind of the more you learn the more you sort of understand the psychology like the very basic sort of psychology that's going into some pretty fucked up shit right um yeah and yeah growing growing up in that situation understanding human relationships as ones of power uh is Right, right, exactly, and and you know, uh, yeah, it, right. it's, it is, yeah, it is just interesting more than it is anything else, really, in the end. But yeah, yeah, um, you know, the point of fascism is to dest- destroy community, and it successfully destroyed community. Right, and and when the and the and did Polanski so to such from. an extent right. that when community was attempted to be reestablished, it was in some ways too late right and and that being said you know like kids he was pretty young when his father came back and was going to get remarried and kids a lot of kids tend to react very poorly to that right like that is a thing that children have struggle with and right seemingly Polanski continues to struggle with as a grown-ass man Polanski yeah. was only born in 1933 which means that that post-war reunion where he'd been wandering the countryside for, you know, years at that point in hiding. Right. Well, that's what He's he describes 13. in that thing. It's like the, right. the timeline's a little bit like yeah, hard to follow it's... just <laughs> mainly because of like the, the nature of an interview and stuff. You're, you're talking about a child child. And He's like, incredibly young and, when this and is happening. You sort too. of get into a weird condemnation of society as a whole as a part of this, right? Because it's like, what, why does, why, why allow this to happen, right? Like this shouldn't be really fundamentally shouldn't be possible right like shouldn't be able to have a child that young just sort of wandering the countryside on his own right like that's not that's not acceptable yeah um uh cursory look at biographical information um at first he went into hiding with a catholic family who had promised his father that they'd look after him uh learned Catholic prayers, uh, but at one point a priest came by the house and asked him catechism questions that he couldn't answer uh, in like a gotcha moment, uh, and it was after that that he left, um, perhaps out of concern. I don't know out of right, his like, own or out was of the family's concern, but he... if that right. if that priest to. Rip- yeah, he had been he had been found out, uh, which was a risk to the life of the family. Well, and we've we've point, encountered right? this as a phenomenon uh, in um, movies about the Holocaust before. It is a real phenomenon, right? This sort of like Jewish children learning yeah. various sort of I I don't know much about Catholicism myself, but like learning about various Catholic prayers and stuff to like as as a as a cover, but then getting caught or becoming 
you know being seen as a risk after after some time like we just we've encountered like we some of some very excellent movies have been about that right and uh yeah it, it it's just you know i i don't know it's just interesting that like he in many ways you can sort of see the sort of ripple on effect of like that that childhood in the kinds of movies he makes like the way his movies work or the way the characters in the movies work like it's sort of in many ways seems to be like like a sort of elemental sort of struggle for control and things like that um yeah um yeah i don't know it's uh it's just an interesting uh kind of peak like i we we don't hear much talk about stuff like this uh that often most of the time Polanski is mostly just like if there's an interview it's just like an interview like the second interview uh in this doc- the, the like the, the yeah. more modern documentary right oh, yeah. it, no we have certainly never experienced right. Polanski talking about his childhood before right yeah yeah interesting that they saved that for the third one uh but well I'd also I, yeah. I for me like um, the, the the metaphors between the Holocaust and German and Nazi Germany to somebody like Dickey was enough that I I think maybe somebody wanted to sort of draw those parallels as well it's also that interview happened after his third movie, so yeah. it makes also sense in that capacity as well. But uh, right, right, you know, right. Of course, it's yeah. just interesting because you, we learn a lot of things that uh, are very revealing in many ways. Dickie has an invasive, yeah, force. that demands that, right. that takes control, demands um, control, like sort of suppresses, yeah, the behaviors of everybody else. Yeah. Now, of course, on on another hand, there's mm-hmm. a class element to. Dickie versus George, right? George is uh, someone who lives by status. He's bought this huge, expensive house. He's got, he has his old his, friends his ask wife, about right. Agnes, right? And he ends right. the movie by first, yelling about Agnes. Yeah, I mean, we are, which we are is presumably his first one. It's interesting though because we 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 are not yeah. given a lot of background. We're meant to sort of infer and and sort of guess about a lot of the background information on that. Yes. Um because like bearing in mind that like he buys this castle after having sold a successful factory that he owned, right? He's part of the the presumably part of the petty right. bourgeoisie. He's he's he, somebody in one of the like the blurbs that I read, they describe him as an aristocrat, which I don't debatable if that's accurate or not he's definitely like petty bourgeoisie maybe like somewhere in the sort of like realm of aristocrats hard to say right uh because those are often hand in hand he doesn't yeah he doesn't seem to be yeah i i wouldn't i wouldn't it's it's hard to say like some people do but like at the same time he now obviously factory owners and and the aristocracy, especially in England, have an extremely high level of overflow. Uh, uh, yeah, they could because, be, like, that's like I mean, yes. that makes up a huge portion of the people who who establish the sort of modern capitalists in in England in the eighteen hundreds, right? Like, there is a lot of like aristocrats sort of finding a new way to make money. Uh, but yeah, it, it it's just right, 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 right. Either way, he is yeah, he is at, at minimum. The petty bourgeoisie. He's a factory owner. He's, yeah, he. He does not have another home. He did not sell an right, ancestral right. home, right? 
he sold the factory. He divorced his first wife. He bought this castle and found a young French thing that he wants to be his. Well, and that's the thing is we're we're, and we're kind of unclear about some of the timeline. That's some one of, one of the, some of the things that make it interesting. Like, does he fall for yeah. her, and then that prompts him to like upend his life, divorce his wife, and and we right, don't know right, the exact right, right. flow. Yeah, we don't know that part. But either, we right. we we know enough to like make some basic inferences about like one way or the other. There is a we can. It's one of a few possible. She doesn't really love him. Uh, they have moved into this castle, and he he says he doesn't have any money. And we don't get. We also get his best friend trying to give George an out to right. ask him for money, right? Repeatedly, uh, and we also see that really all they have for food and drink in the house is the eggs from their chickens. Uh, and homemade vodka. Yeah, the homemade vodka is fascinating. Like that, that one's the that's the like the eggs are kind of like the eggs still sort of fit into the like wayward aristocrat sort of vibe. Like you've got this sort of yeah fundamental like like pre investment that like just pays dividends forever. And like well, we always got the eggs right because they're just going to keep reproducing and making right. more chickens and stuff. There's always. There's always money in the forty chickens, right? Exactly. That's like, <laughs> that's a thing, right? And then, but like the vodka yeah. is the real like, oh wow, we are we are, we're making moonshine around here. That's what's happening. Yeah, she's making her own moonshine. Uh, they do drink mead, which is something that the island that is shot on and set on is known for. Uh, their local mead production. Um, so there is that. They do have some of that. Uh, but yeah. Um, also, obviously, the, they're in a castle surrounded by chickens. He, that's George is a coward, right? There's right. this overbearing metaphor of all the chickens. But, uh, yeah. Um, so, George is... They've got the appearance of money, but they don't actually have the money anymore, right? Right. Um, now he does have this castle of historical significance. It is. I mean, it has value, where, but it's uh, not like imme- it's not it's not immediately turn in turn into valuable, right? Like it is. It's, right, right, right. It's a thing he's he's spent all of his money on it, and like you know, it's not going to immediately turn right back into money. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you don't think. Even after even after the movie, you don't think there's a big a big tourist oh I mean like uh, in, destination in, in the for, real world for people coming to see where where Walter Scott wrote right. Rob Roy I, I will say like uh, not where Rob Roy lived right 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 but where Walter Scott wrote his version of Rob Roy's the story. thing about it is is that like on a fundamental level they found an extremely engaging and fascinating location like I find those like they did. inland yeah. like the the sort of like uh, submerged roads and stuff. I, I find all that stuff extremely interesting. Like it's a very engaging yeah. location, right? And in many ways, is fundamental to the movie being, in my mind, the movie being successful. Like the you really do have without. I think honestly, without that that location, I don't think this movie is probably very interesting in some ways. Um, yeah, but it, I agree. It is, um, yeah, as a tourist location, I mean, like, but for him, the the actual character is for George, 
it's just another English castle, right? Like, it's just another... I mean, there's fucking things are a dime a dozen, right? There's, like, a million of them, right? Right, right. They're, right. they're all small. They're all shitty. Nobody wants to actually own them for other th- anything other than status because they're a bad place to live. Uh, they're not yeah. good for the fundamental act of living. Right. Like George says, it's impossible to heat in right. the winter. It's, it's a terrible place to live. Uh, and... Teresa has as much disdain for it. She's one of my favorite things, subtle, is that uh, when the other people come to visit, as she's showing the house around, she's smoking a cigarette, and she just throws it on the floor of the, of the castle I mean, it's made as stone. they're walking around. <laughs> it ain't gonna like, burn. Yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but even even his other more bougie friends that are like, what we can replace the ancient stained glass window right. <laughs> that, uh, how much could it cost ten yeah. dollars <laughs> yeah 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 um, yeah exactly it's like yeah switching gears a little bit one thing i really loved about this movie is the opening sequence uh because when it first pops up being in black mm-hmm. and white this looks like uh you know, and knowing what I knew about the movie, right? This is these are bad guys are going to kidnap a rich couple. That's basically right. all I knew, right? Uh, so when it opens, it looks like an American heist movie where a car is about to zoom across the right, desert, right? Right. Uh, but the car doesn't zoom and turns out is being pushed right. by a guy yes, with a yeah, bandaged arm. Uh, and then the desert starts to flood. Uh, and, well, that, and that's the interesting uh, thing, right? Is that yeah. is the movie does so heavily rely on the like dynamics of the place, right? Like it, it's so the fact that that floods and all that is so important. It's also interesting it, from the yeah. bonus materials that they wanted a house and not a and not a castle. Yeah, that they weren't originally planning on that it was going to be like an island, but not necessarily a tidal uh, road, a tidal road. Tidal. Well, they were looking for title roads, right? Like they knew they wanted a title road because um the one guy who went and found it was like hunting for property listings that include title roads, right? Mm-hmm. So they want a title road because yeah. they want them to be trapped, right? It needs to be a cul-de-sac, right? That's that's fundamental right, right, right. to the yeah. sort of core concept. But like the only one that's any good they can find is a castle, and frankly, the castle makes it. No castle, right. no movie. Yeah. Like you know what I mean? Like frankly, like without the castle element of it, without it being sort of a yeah. hyper absurd building, the movie just doesn't right. work, right? Like the same character in a normal house or even a nice house on this island is just not as engaging. It the the, the absurdity yeah, the of fact, the castle is important. Right. And Polanski repeatedly talks about uh the absurdity being what what draws him to uh the story. And like it's not nearly as absurd. Yeah, it, the gothic it, it, castle. Well, it becomes without, at some point. With, it basically becomes, uh, yeah, it becomes straw dogs in many yeah. ways. You know, it, it, it's just interesting. Like the, yeah, it, it's just fascinating how much that location is core to this being a good movie. Like to be this movie being yeah. engaging and interesting to watch, which I do think it is. Like I, I, I you know, I, I made fun of. This is the probably the first of the Polanski films I actually found like legitimately engaging to watch. I just don't know that it is yeah. as revolutionarily amazing as people seem to want it to be. Polanski's interesting. He, when he first decides to start making movies, he moves to France, 
uh, because he admires what the French New Wave is doing. But then... Doesn't like Cinema Veritas. He doesn't think... Well, he doesn't like... I think it's mostly a politics thing. He just doesn't... He doesn't think they're doing anything intelligent. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, so he goes back, he makes Knife in the Water in Poland, and now he's making this stuff in, in Britain. So, you know, nothing nothing we've seen him do is akin to the French New Wave at right. all. Right. Um, knife in the Water's the closest. Uh, right. But mostly that is just because he's using a non-professional actress. Right, right. Uh, is what gets it the closest. Um, well, and that's the thing, though, is that, uh, like, that's that's sorry, I'm going to derail us if I'm not careful here. But like that yeah. kind of is, becomes part of like his sort of like fundamental thing. Right. Is it like this is like getting a little bit maybe too far, but like he's the actress is almost always a second thought. And the thing, the core things he's looking for almost always oh. tend to be exclusively appearance. Oh, absolutely. Like. They like the no, day is, before that... shooting. We still don't have an actress because, and that that's yeah. a core that at its core comes down to because she's not important. Like, right. there's not. It's pretty becomes pretty inescapable, right? That like the reason why you don't have an actress, you spend hours trying to fill out find. You spend like months trying to find Dicky, and the actress is just a secondary afterthought, right? Like, oh, any woman can be this. Like, it doesn't matter because, like. You know, there's a there's a sort of core, sort of seeming fundamental, um, like lack of respect there. That's like, no, nah, it doesn't matter. Like, I just need her to look like what I need her to look like. It doesn't matter otherwise. Um, yeah. And we found that in yeah, every you know, other Blansky thing too, in many ways, right? Uh, right. At least, at least Godard realized you needed a gun and a girl, and those were like the right, two right, right points. <laughs> Well, and, and and presumably, like Godard, on a fundamental level, needed that the girl part to actually be able to like act. Yeah, and you know, it's not it's not that she no, can't. No, no, no. I'm not right? saying that this. I did uh, not. I'm not trying to accuse her of not yeah. being an actress. It's just I'm totally accusing act. specifically yeah. Polanski of not giving a shit. Right. 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 And in fact, with knife in the water, he particularly sought out someone who he knew couldn't, right? right? So, uh, sought out someone he could manipulate. Basically, I don't know how Catherine Denuave uh, ended up in Repulsion. I don't I, know how I think that was cast, but been... presumably, since Repulsion is mostly you, about you two sisters, pick some... he didn't wait until the door. <laughs> he didn't wait until the day before right, filming right. to cast his two main right. roles. Oh, sorry, I was reading about Francois Doliac. She's she died very young. Yeah, she died very young. I was I was trying to read her Wikipedia page real quick to see like what other she was had a film career that started, yeah. you know, not not there uh, at yeah. all. Right, like the way he talks about it, her in the thing makes it sort of sound like like oh yeah, I don't know. No, the, she was she, she was had a doing film career prior to prior to meeting him. Yeah, I think she happened to be doing like a play locally or something. Like she was, she was close by. Is one reason why she was cast. Right, it's, gotta love casting based on physical yeah. like now, approximation. There had been another actress cast in the Teresa role, who right upon arriving on set realized that she would not be right for it. 
And then I feel like there was talk of another person. Uh, but, uh, but that guy, uh, I don't know why she fell through, but in any case, uh, uh, Dorliac gets signed on very, very close to start. Like date. literally it's, they make yeah. it say like they at least describe it as basically being like the day before. Yeah. Yeah. So, like shooting starts. It's pretty intense. Right. Um, yeah. And she's, you know, she. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, it, it, she does a good job. It's, it's, I mean, again, the, in many ways, her character doesn't make all, a lot of sense. <laughs> no, but also all the characters in the film are relatively shallowly written. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's like, well, she's not any more like shallow of a character than anybody else. Right. But they're all fairly shallow. Like, none of them, there's not a lot of depth to any of the characters. I literally have in my notes, why under these circumstances does she choose to sleep naked? Like, that doesn't... Like, I don't know. That's insane. It's like, I. It's like what's well, the only way I can sleep, I guess. I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it is truly an insane decision. Right. And uh, then before crawling out the window to go see what Dickie's doing outside, doesn't even put on real clothes, just grabs her bathrobe. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't make any sense, but whatever. Um, yeah. It's fine. Uh, well, I think, you know, to a certain extent, okay, we're getting into what I assume is some core fundamental, like, Polanski problems here about, like, yes. he wants her to be completely flighty and, and, and basically right, stupid, right? right, right. right? Like, yes. she makes bad decisions. She's purely impulsive. She's she's all impulse, no no thought, right? Right. Um, like, why would you light of a newspaper between the toes of your kidnapper and make this enormous man mad. Like it doesn't, as none a, of the things she does make any fucking sense as a goof, Pat. It's a right. Goof. As a goof. Right. Well, cause like, that's the thing, right. Is that like, we kind of alternate in the story. Like George is constantly like, doesn't have dominance, but like, and can't have dominance, but like would maybe like to have it. She, on the other hand is put in this sort of like, flighty spirit sort of thing where like maybe at times she she will sometimes establish dominance over george but like is otherwise completely like unbound right like she just does whatever the fuck she wants at any given time she has no like Teresa as a character is just a like yeah it, it really i think speaks to a fundamental like view of women really frankly yeah. Oh no, I really she do. Sleep, she sleeps around. She she's promiscuous. She doesn't like care about anything. Right. She doesn't care about the chickens until somebody tells her like until somebody tries to take it away from her. Yeah. She she uses sex on a regular basis to like try to get what she wants. Like it's and she oh, makes her, makes her own vodka in the castle. Right. Basement. Like as women do, right? Like that's yes. a fundamental trait of women is making their own vodka. <laughs> yeah. No. No, that's actually the most interesting thing about her, right? <laughs> is that she makes her own Right, it, it really right. is, right? Like, it yeah. actually, like, it is the one thing that is a true, like, trait that makes... Yeah. That the, not doesn't make sense in the circumstance, but does, like, is special she, and interesting. She makes it herself. She keeps it in the fireplace. Uh, and yes. she chooses to share it with George before she knows... That George is burying his friend, right? You mean Dickie. Dickie. Or Dickie. Yeah, not George. Yeah. 
she chooses to right. share it with Dickie. Well, we uh, get before we she get knows core, that Albie is dead. I, I think I think our core idea here is we are we are again having a Polanski makes a judgment about women, womankind as a whole. Yeah, well, I think Polanski thinks I think that character is meant to go out there and try to like get what she wants using. I mean, maybe. I, I, I I'm not sure, but I think it. it I, I think, think the way that sequence sort of actually plays today. out is the most interesting thing Teresa does. I I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I, I just I'm not sure what the initial mode like. It it's all she makes a lot of decisions that don't really right. necessarily track. And you're sort of just supposed to take them as well. She's just weird and flighty. She just does what she wants. Yeah. Yeah, and her weird flightiness. I mean, honestly, in the final sequence, uh, when George goes back to the bedroom and the bathroom door is closed and he starts throwing stuff into her suitcase, I expected her to find. I expected him to find her dead in the bathtub, for a, for a second. I really, I don't. I wasn't like, that extreme because it, the movie just felt too comedic for that. Even yeah. even Dickie's death feels comedic, despite the fact that Dickie dies. Fair. It it is yeah. like somewhat comical yeah um, the, you know it and, and, and in some ways i think that that juxtaposition works works in the favor of the movie the movie doesn't it, it stops the movie from feeling the movie would probably be kind of a little bit boring if it were um just a straight drama the sort of semi-comedic elements i don't i don't know i would call it a comedy it gets referred to as a comedy I don't know if I would go that far, but it yeah. is comedic. I mean, we've broken, we, you know, I guess not everybody's dead at the end. So I guess it has to be a comedy. Right, um, right, right. So, um, well, actually, on that note, not everyone being dead at the end. Uh, where is this going? There is a bit. <laughs> where, where is this going? There is a way in which this movie started life as a film adaptation of Waiting for Godot. Is that... Is that real? I mean, did they? Yeah, like, if you've never seen Waiting for Godot, or... it's it's about uh, it's about heard. two guys yeah. waiting. Uh, Godot is God, uh, right? I, I I figured, but like, yeah. like um, I did not know that this is it real that this started that way. Yeah, so we're at a time when Beckett and Pinter are are active playwrights. Polanski had wanted to adapt Waiting for Godot, but Samuel Beckett refused to sell him the rights to it. Because huh. Beckett did not think Waiting for Godot should be made into a movie. Um, okay. With a suggestion, from what I've read, this is drawing from the uh, the Criterion essay uh, written by uh, David Thompson. Thompson suggests uh, that, um, says that uh, Beckett had basically thought that there was no reason to make a movie out of something conceived for the stage. Okay. Uh, so refuse the rights. To that end, the German title of this movie, and it, and one working title of this movie, is When Cattleback Comes Back. Or When Cattleback Comes, rather. Okay. Um, when Cattleback Comes, Cattleback being the uh Sort of the, the god boss, figure right? of this. But, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but being Dickie and Albie's boss. Right, the guy who hired them, who right, is yes. the threat. Yeah. Um. And Cottleback coming within the movie is treated as an apocalyptic event, right? 
it'll be uh it'll be Dickie's savior, he hopes. But And the death of everybody else, right? Yeah, it'll be the death of everybody else. Teresa is absolutely convinced that it's coming at the end of the film, right? Uh right. it gets really fever pitched as they expect Cattleback to return. Uh because as far as Teresa is concerned, they've killed they've killed Cattleback's prophet, right? Right. So, um, so you know that there's there's Beckett stuff in here, I guess. Right. Still, even as even as less of this, uh, and uh, the actor who plays Albie, Jack McGowan, uh, had been in Godot. And had been in Beckett's Endgame on stage. Donald Pleasant had been in a Harold Pinter play on stage. Uh, so, uh, probably not coincidental that those were two of the first people uh, that were cast right. for the movie, right? Um, even if the script was not not that anymore. Um It's. It would be an interesting interpretive lens to imagine this as a hostage thriller waiting for Godot. I don't know that it actually plays that way, except for the last five minutes. Right. There's no. Yeah. You know, Dicky gets that. Waiting for Godot, you know, is about the hope of Godot coming. So, so right. Dicky does that hope of have that hope of Cattleback. Um, has the reaching out to Cattleback to check on him. Yeah, well, Dickie's in that existential thing. George and, and Teresa are not necessarily, except they could be. Like, if they wanted that to be the theme, George and Teresa right. could be more worried about what happens when Cattlebeck gets here throughout the movie. They're just right. not. They're just not, right? yeah. It, it comes up a little... It doesn't only come up at the end, but it comes up mostly. It, it is... <laughs> yeah. Right, it is a concern for mostly for the end of the film, right? It's... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Teresa especially, right, goes completely off the deep end by the end of the movie in the worry. Right. Uh, whereas George at that point has become a man and it's broken him. Right. Uh, he has killed Dickie and he has completely shut down almost catatonically uh, until... Uh, for a few minutes at least, right? So, right. until uh, what's it? Cecil comes back. Yeah. Cecil coming back just reminded me of George's death, or of of Dickie's death, uh, where where George George shoots him, but he doesn't die. He gets back to the car, gets the machine gun, and then falls over and blows up the car by shooting. Right, the, I, the gun. blowing up the car is just is. I mean, that's yeah. where we kind of keep finding ourselves playing with comedy. Right? Is that like? Yeah. It's so, um, yeah. It's so sort of like not not real, right? It, yeah, right. Car fucking blows up. It's too yeah. much. And when, I don't know when when Cecil gets back and gets out of the car. He's like, I think I left my gun. <laughs> Just like surveying what's going on, and and I think George just yells, "You think?" And we get a pan to Dicky dead and the car on fire. Yeah. <laughs> It really is a great comedic moment. It's just ridiculous. That's what I mean. It's like the movie yeah. does have some like, 
the movie is is like I hesitate to call it a comedy, but it has some right. very comedic moments, and that's not the only one. There's a most. There's a few like most of its comedy is really broad, though. Uh, I don't right. know. Well, that's like, what I mean. Is it? It, is, it yeah. is not like it is. That's why I don't. That's why I wouldn't call it a comedy in many ways. Is yeah. that like it doesn't quite like achieve a level where um, you would be like, well, this is a good comedy. It is just got decent some decent comedic moments that like right. you comedic enjoy sequences like, it, only not just jokes but you know right. Tiki no, pretending like, to be their gardener setups and stuff yes the is, setups is are, a, are comedic yeah. at times right like yeah. the the intro where we get to meet dickie and albie is, is, is somewhat comedic right like yeah the, the way their, their their interactions play out and stuff it, it it's it's just it isn't a comedy so right. is all the coming, the coming back to a car, the car, and Dickie discovering that it's a tidal road, uh, right. not knowing that tidal roads are a thing that exist, uh, is it's dark but it's funny. It's it's still uh, yeah, it's still comedic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then some of like while Dickie is pretending to be their gardener, a lot of what he says is deadpan snarker butler stuff, uh, right. And then, like the the one woman pointing out that Dickie is wearing a Christian Dwar tie is like a mid '60s sitcom joke. It's just like the way she says it feels like, uh, "Are you being served or something?" You know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's inconsistent in its comedy. And, right, and, and yeah, only yeah, some absolutely. of its comedy is actually black humor. Uh, most of it's just broader than that. Um, the kid with the gun—that's a—that's a, that's a f- funny dark comedy moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, that that part is probably that part didn't especially, play as well, especially for me. the way it's it edited. Wasn't, yeah, I, it, <laughs> it is meant to be comedic. I, I think it it maybe doesn't land as well as some of the other jokes yeah. do, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, well, it's meant to be absurdly horrific, right? Right. When right. the gun goes off and every, we get a shot of everyone's face, basically. Right. Of course. Uh, yeah. Before and we it's... reveal that all he shot was the was the window. Uh, <laughs> and then the dad, the dad. <laughs> the, the, the the aftermath of the fire of the gun is really for me the funny part. Is the yeah. like the how much could it cost? Ten dollars or whatever, basically. Right. Is, right. Is yeah. Scary. That part is. And and George is like kind of fundamental breakdown at that point where he starts to just like whatever sort of veil of politeness he was a, a, right despite the stress was was proffering to these people who visited like just completely <laughs> breaks down. He's just get the fuck out of my house basically. When he's, when he's kicked well. everyone, when he's kicked everyone else out, and then Cecil walks out of the castle and is like, "Hey, <laughs> yeah, I really love that's your probably art." Probably the best. That is legitimately probably the best part of the. That yeah. might be my one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Actually, is he's both he both because Cecil himself has not done anything, he still right. at least says like, oh, "It's a pleasure to make your acquaintance." And then the yes. motion and face he makes of "Get the fuck out" is yes. is very good. Just, just the point. Yeah, it's a great punchline to a scene. The scene. Yeah, and that's there are moments in this movie that are great and very funny or very dark or very dramatic in ways that really work. Uh yeah, this is definitely my favorite Polanski we've watched 
so far, right. as you've said. Right. Yeah. It's a, it was a low bar to start with, but... Right, it was an we, extremely low bar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think you liked... You liked um, I did. I liked Repulsion more than, than you did. Yeah. Yeah. I... I, I couldn't there was just not much for me to latch on to in Repulsion. It's just not my style of film in many ways. Uh but I understood it was not bad. Uh but like this is the first Polanski movie we've watched where I actually probably did I did legitimately enjoy myself. Um it like I said, it has some serious problems that I that that like can't be it being a decent film doesn't fix the fact that like <laughs> like again, there are some issues with like his sort of fundamental politic on how like humans interact and stuff that right. like is core to the movie. And I was worried. I spent much of the movie worrying it was going to go way, way darker at some point Yeah, that like that his sort of fundamental worldview was going to lead it to dark places. I didn't necessarily want it to go. So I am pleased that it stayed mostly lightly sort of light and comedic because, you know, Polanski was a bit is a bit of a wild card that way and 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 you know based on what we've seen I was like well if this goes real dark I'm gonna have a very unpleasant time yeah it's um, when did we watch the Andre Waja films do you remember how long oh, ago that I was well it was in time to have a postcard for it so so it wasn't that's true uh I wonder what number they were uh, Obviously, that, knife in the water three four years ago, right? Knife in the water being two oh five. It's got to be after that. Okay, uh, they were they were in the two eighties, so it was about a year after knife in the water. Okay, Andre Waja is about seven years older than uh, than Polanski. Yeah. Uh, well, at least. One of his movies was directly about uh, the Warsaw Uprising. Uh, I don't recall Waja being Jewish. So it's different. They have a different upbringing in that manner. Right. right. Um, so being. Being a few years older, uh, it's just you know, like politically, they're very much. Well, like Polanski right? seems, yeah, Polanski, like even in his interview, seems to be like diametrically opposed to Waja's style of filmmaking and stuff, right? Like right, it's like right. the idea that 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 sort of like fundamentally political, like big st- big political statement film is like right. I think he adamantly avoid wants to avoid making right, absolutely, uh, and yeah. so to a certain extent is is purposely turns his mind to like more frivolous pursuits, right? Like films that are fundamentally more frivolous. You have more more yeah. or like not not engaged with like with sort of like right s- like and bigger political issues. Waja survives th- through the war, uh, and lives in. Soviet Poland and ends up making a movie about how Soviet Poland isn't actually communist and needs to be Marxist. Right. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Polanski lives under the Nazis, then lives in Soviet Poland and seems to just not register a difference. It's just, well, Polanski, well, like Polanski, like, like, 
I will point out, like Polanski, <laughs> like despite how people tell me that Polanski's very intelligent, yeah, Polanski's political views are childish. Yeah, in many ways, right? Like Polanski sees, like when you listen to him discuss and describe what like politically is going on and things like that, like he just seems detached he seems not yeah. interested in understanding that these things are like impactful or meaningful to other people right or to even to him um it's like he's kind of an enigma that way like i don't really understand what if he has a political co- like conception of the world it's not clear exactly what it is um he wants to be an outsider from whatever system happens to be dominant it seems um sort of but also wants to be very much taken inside by whatever the dominant structure is and it made sort of into somebody who is important in that structure right like it's a it's a very he's very very nebulous right like he doesn't want to engage with the politics of it he doesn't want to make big films he like purposely seems to choose sort of simple or like kind of childish works because he doesn't want to be involved in big issues he he seems to think that like whatever's in charge is is bougie basically i don't know does not yeah. also seem to know what that word means uh despite having grown <laughs> up in soviet uh one like does not seem to be fully aware of that of the, the meaning of the term but whatever yeah i don't know i i also feel like he leaves Poland for political reasons. Not just that And that the, might be the case, but if yeah. if he does it you get the impression that like he doesn't necessarily even sort of personally want to admit that. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like Well in nineteen eighty one in an interview with Rolling I meant, Stone. Like, in the interview that yes, we got. I think like, that's fair. I don't have the nineteen eighty one Rolling Stone <laughs> this interview. Is, this is a quote from Wikipedia. I just, I just run across. Right. Uh, Polanski says in this interview for, with Rolling Stone in 81 uh, that you must live in a communist country to really understand how bad it can be. You will, <laughs> then you will appreciate capitalism. Uh, which, which in 1981 is, uh, is a thing to say. <laughs> um, right. Like, I mean, legitimately, right? Like, to a certain extent, too, like, one has to wonder, like, this is going to be mean and dark and, and like kind of a one has to wonder if if to a certain extent right somebody like Polanski can't be the kind of person Polanski wants to be in a Soviet bloc country yeah you know what I mean he wants to he wants to be dominant he wants to like take control of things and I think maybe to a certain extent the system's not set up to allow somebody like him to do that yeah, I also forgot that Polanski has a bit part in a generation as well, the one about Warsaw, the Washa film about Warsaw. Yeah, I I think I think you're right. Uh, no, like there's because, two Washa, because so there's much two Washa this... films about Warsaw too. Canal is the right. one about the Warsaw uprising. Right, a generation is the other one about the the resistance in in Warsaw. Anyway, sorry. Like. But where I'm trying to go with this is the idea that, to a certain extent, like, Polanski's ability to dominate and and be such a sort of fundamental force in film in, um, in the West is in part predicated on a sort of 
both capitalist and neoliberal like structure, right? The, yeah. Like it, he makes money. He is considered like erudite, and, and his films are considered that way. And like they, and like when you combine that with like sort of the push for like, you know, especially in his younger days for sort of, we we, we know what like Soviet bloc films look like in that era, right? He's yeah. not. He doesn't want to make those. He, you know, so like. It really seems like, well, you know, the West is the structure that will allow him to be what he wants to be, right? Combine that with the fact that um, he does seem to really buy into the sort of neoliberal structure, right? Like, this is, like, the good way for the world to be, right? Um, partially because it yeah. has benefited him so intensely, right? Like, I mean, Chinatown isn't anti-capital. It's, it's, no, I know China, it I, Chinatown I, flirts with an anti-capitalist politic. Certainly. Right, but so does every other movie in the 80s. Um, yeah. Like, every movie in the 80s involves some sort of evil property developer. It's just a rule. Uh, <laughs> that is... Okay, well, Chinatown came out in 1974, but describing Chinatown so maybe he, as, maybe he, as involving as involving an unethical property developer is is both true about Chinatown and so yes. reductive it's very funny. I, I am aware <laughs> but of that. Yes. I am aware of that. But my, my point just being that, like, <laughs> That I don't think Roman Polanski is anti-capitalist. Like yeah. I don't think at his core, like it goes to the classic sort of thing is like, like the neoliberal structure can make films and make art about that are at least semi-antithetical to themselves as a part of the structure that allows them to continue to do the thing that they do. Uh, I just don't. I don't see him as an anti-capitalist figure. Is my point? Yeah. That I'm trying to make. Um. Like at his core, like on a sort of fundamental level, I don't think he, like obviously that 1981 interview makes that pretty clear, right? Like, this is the best ordering of society that we have. Like, this is the way yeah. things should be. Yeah. Um. Like, you can't get much more than much hard, more hardcore about it than you will see that capitalism is the is is the is like the best way for like I forget you already right. read me the, I've already forgotten the quote, but it yeah. was basically capitalism is the best way to do things. Right, 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 right. Whereas, whereas Waja sees the problems of, uh, of Soviet Poland and critiques them interiorly. It says from these the are left. bad because you're not doing Marxism yeah. correctly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. Polanski fucks off to England. <laughs> uh, right, where he can be as right. capitalist and neoliberal as he wants to be, up into and including having the system cover for his crimes. Like, bearing in mind right. that that's a fundamental function and order of, like, the neoliberal system, right? Is We talked about this, what was that, last week? Yeah. We've talked this about this hundreds of times, it feels like, at this point. is It's it's ordered in such a way as to allow the powerful to, like, stay powerful, right? And to yeah. cover up for crimes that, it that like, you that even the people who participate in the system say to themselves, shouldn't be possible, right? Uh, it shouldn't work this way, but it does, right? Uh, but uh, I guess there's nothing we can do. Or... Oh well, there's or or finding some way to mitigate, mitigate. Mit, I can't say that word now. Mitigate that crime in their minds, right? To like write it off in some capacity or another. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a prime case of that, right? Like he's just, he's like, uh, you could use him as the like the poster child for it, right? Mm -hmm. The system covers, covered, and covers for him, which is a function of that system, right? And I'm not saying I'm not saying that the Soviet system does not do that. Let's be very, very clear. But it probably right. covers. I would say I would argue it maybe covers for different 
kinds of people, right? Like who who have a different place, a different place in that society, or even just wouldn't allow him to. It's either way. Like, of course, it's the best system in his mind. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It works to his advantage, like intensely. Um. So another thing uh, that comes up in David Thompson's essay is uh, uh, Thompson says that American critics at the time uh, complained about elements of, quote, necrophilia, homosexuality, and sadism in the film. Necrophilia? Yeah, where does necrophilia come from? <laughs> I don't understand that one. <clears throat> I That one, like, I... I understand where the other ones come from. I can like do yeah. the math in my head. The necrophilia yeah, is a mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah, I have no idea. I I um, I like it. I love it anytime a critic or somebody who's complaining about a movie like drops something like that and you're just like, "What?" Yeah. Did you watch what, a different movie what are, than I did? What are you What are you bringing to the text, my man? Yeah, like yeah, because you are you. Yeah, you're clearly. Uh, yeah, you definitely. You you saw what you came in with here, uh, yeah. pretty severely. Yeah. Um, uh, Thompson says that Polanski's response was essentially, "That sounds like a you problem." Uh, which, which, which fair, like fair, yeah, like the, which that, fair. that does sound like a you problem. <laughs> if you see yeah. necrophilia in my movie that features no necrophilia, it seems like a you problem. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I just I have no idea. That one's no blowing idea. my mind. I cannot. Yeah. Is it because like, is it because they've kind of identified the idea that Dicky is so, in many ways, torn up about the death of Albie that like I don't know. decided that that a one man caring about the death of another man is maybe both homoerotic and necrophilia and necrophilia i don't know i'm just i don't know i can't i can't i'm trying to bend my brain to make it work adam i cannot yeah yeah i mean listen sadism obviously everyone's a relationship uh homosexuality uh george is effeminate uh dickie's got uh, a love for albie that is uh deeper than maybe a critic would want um right George has makeup on when he meets oh uh, when he meets uh, right yeah Dickie. a thing that's unheard um, of in uh, yeah. in England yeah among right. uh, among the bourgeoisie yes unheard of yeah yeah so well I mean he's also in the <laughs> that's the other thing about about Teresa running around uh, naked or in a bathrobe for the rest of the movie we know she has nightgowns because George <laughs> George is wearing one he's uh, wearing nightgowns one. at one point right yeah <laughs> but but yeah anyway um. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, the necrophilia thing is just insane. Yeah, I don't know. It, yeah, it cannot cannot be processed. It's, in, I, it's. I wish that Thompson had named what American critic that is quoting, so so that we could we could yeah, me say, too, me oh, too. that makes sense when we see whose name it was. All right, I kind of wonder if you look it up. Right, I'm kind of now I'm curious. Like, call the sack film. Ne- you know, Google might be our friend here on this one. Necro, <laughs> Godphilia. I can't even spell that word. Necrophilia. All right, let's let's see if we get any like immediate hits. Nope, 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 nope. Just back to the essay, probably. 
Um, <laughs> Seems like where we're headed. Roger Ebert is just you know that that's not actually it's just that, like it's it can only find cul-de-sac. It can't find yeah. necrophilia, so it's just giving me anything that mentions cul-de-sac. So no, it, that, that was a failure. <laughs> I tried. I did my best. That's as much energy as I'm willing to put into this. Just an insane thing to say, though. Uh, yeah, no, I love it. I love that level of 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 of, of brain brain poison that you do that but yeah yeah <laughs> so we talked i just uh, like the we, idea that somebody also read that review and was like oh man i don't want to go see this movie it's got necrophilia in it <laughs> yeah yeah um we've talked about how uh a lot of people were having a very bad time making this movie including Pulaski. god everybody had a bad time making this movie uh everybody hated living on location uh the uh, town seemed to hate them. The town seems to which, hate which them. Which fair? Everybody hates Dorliac, uh, apparently, uh, except <laughs> except then well, they all save seems her to from hate Dorliac for like for no reason. Like they don't give a yeah. reason why they didn't like her. Like you know what I mean? Like yeah, it's never explained right. as like a justified like. Well, she was like she kept doing this thing. Or like we're given lots of reasons why someone might uh, dislike. Yeah. What is it, Leonard? Um, what's his last name? I forgot. Uh, Lionel Stander. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Lionel Stander. Yeah. Like. Is uh, apparently a horrible asshole through most of the movie. Yeah, production. Um, Polanski complains that Donald Pleasance was trying to hog the camera the entire time and was really showboating. Uh, and for some reason, Donald Pleasance decided on his own that George was bald. Shave his head. Yeah, and I love showed it. up with a shaved. I love head. it so much because is... again, this is like this fits into the same territory, mind you, as the um, as the castle in some ways. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I don't know the movie's the same if he has hair. I think that's fair. It cuts such a weird figure. Yeah. With the shaved head. Like, it just makes him read so unusually on the screen. Yeah. Did it does No, I think that's true. Like, I I think if he's got hair, the movie, like, loses something. I think that's fair. A lot lot of things seem to sort of just land in the lap of this movie in some way, right? Yeah. Uh, Well, apparently, Jack McGowan... Jack McGowan as Albie is the only person who did not have a bad time and the only person that after production... But also the only other person who almost died. Yeah, yes. Um, but uh, but apparently Polanski actually liked him because he wrote The Fearless Vampire Killers, his next film, for, for McGowan yeah, to yeah. star in. Which is which uh, is always is always a pleasant thing. I always I always find that stuff very uh, charming when that sort of stuff happens. Yeah. Despite it being Polanski, I find it very charming when a director or somebody likes somebody they worked with so much that they're like, you know what, I'm going to make a movie for you. Absolutely, yeah, and and you know, like you said, from the clips we saw of that vampire movie, I'm 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 it, it is like I said, looks it interesting. Yeah. It may be the only Polanski movie I've ever seen that I was like, <laughs> I kind of want to see this. Yeah, yeah. Like I, it like I, it just looks so goofy, and I don't know. Yeah. Well, because like I also remember, like I like those. I don't like, I don't like real horror movies very much. Right. Uh, I don't like. Um, I don't mind schlocky horror from like the fifties and sixties. I find that pretty charming in many ways. Um. But I like send-ups of schlocky horror from the 1956. I actually like, like. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Uh, I, I vaguely remember liking, um, what was it, uh, Blood of the Vampire and, and Flesh of Frankenstein. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Found them, I found them charming. 
uh, yeah. despite being also gross. Uh, at least Flesh of, Frank- Flesh of Frankenstein was gross. I don't remember Blood of Dracula very well anymore. Um, but yeah, like I, I find that kind of stuff very charming. So like it's already kind of in a, in a wheelhouse that I that I enjoy. It comes from watching Young Frankenstein way too much as a very young man. <laughs> yes, that makes sense. I assume, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that that plays into cul-de-sac too. I think that it does a little bit, yeah. No, and I think that's one of the reasons why I probably like it is because it does yeah. feel like kind. Of, it does have a bit of a send up of this kind of right, high, uh, this kind of uh, burglar a, movie a little bit. This this plot in this setting could have been made as a, a hammer horror movie. Right. I mean, it could be made as a hammer right. horror, just as equally as it also could have been like a Mel Brooks movie or something like that. Yeah. It could go, it could go hammer horror, which is the slocky horror. It could have gone full comedy, like it could have gone right. the full nine yards as far as comedy is concerned, and just be goofy as shit. Right? Like it, all yeah. those are possibilities that this movie exists in. Instead, we get a occasionally jokey psychological thriller that takes place on a hammer horror set for some reason. Right? So. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh one more beside uh, behind the scenes detail that came up in one of the one of the bonus features is that uh one of the main reasons that Lionel Stander particularly was a mess on set was that Polanski is a perfectionist, right? And once right. once multiple takes uh and that's one of the reasons Polanski doesn't like Dorliac. Uh, yeah, he doesn't like it, anybody who com- essentially voices concerns about doing a million yeah. takes. Right. Um, with long, long hours. Because they're describing like 12-hour yeah. days. Right. Like, is what they're describing. Uh, Polanski decided that they were going to shoot uh, George and Dickie's drunken heart to heart on the beach in one day. This is the scene where Teresa goes into the water and right. Dorliac almost drowns. It nearly kills Dorliac, yes. Yeah. He decided he was going to shoot that in one day. And everyone said, no, that's dumb. <laughs> uh, so they spent all day rehearsing it. And then they go to shoot it at dusk. Um, even though the <laughs> the scene, I guess, takes place at like five in the morning. I'm, it's, it's really hard I'm to so, okay, follow the flow is, of time, time overnight. Is, yeah. Time yeah. is a nightmare in this movie. I will say that about it. It is incomprehensible yeah. from time. from Because you're like waiting. You you have the tides yeah. rolling in and rolling out as a as a sort of like core like cl- timekeeping mechanism. But it doesn't make any sense. Like in the right. end, you're just like, I don't know what time it is. Right. And like we know that... Uh, the boss said he was going to be there at 8 a.m. That's what he said in the f- first phone conversation. Uh, and 8 a.m. comes and goes, and no one shows up. Right. But but anyway, uh, Polanski decided he was going to film all that. And uh, I love the stuff with the uh, with the producer, uh, with the plan- and Polanski's friend who, who, who helped make the film, not like the, the money people, um, talking about... Uh, the plane coming into shot and and now they could have just rented a helicopter right a helicopter right and how a, how a helicopter can actually like come at the right time yeah 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 whereas whereas the plane 
Planes don't hit cues. Right? Famously, planes do not like to sit still in the air. Right, right. So, uh, so yeah, by some by some stroke of miracle, uh, the plane is exactly where they want it to be in the frame, uh, in one take, and they get it shot in one day, which uh, is so crazy. I. I don't know that I believe that it's true. <laughs> I just like right. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine like how that like you know it's it seems like to me like I understand like because they they shoot it all in one day, but they don't shoot all in one take, right? Right. Uh, right. It's not like a single shot. So to my mind, it's like it's it's hard, but like well, I mean, planes are pretty loud. And right. if you know what time it left, whatever place it's going, they do also tra- tend have this habit of traveling roughly the same speed all the time. Right, um, right, right. Like they, they can't. While while they are famously unable to stand still, they also have like speed controls. So it doesn't seem that hard. I mean, like it does seem hard, but it doesn't seem that impossible to be like, okay, well they're they're at this point at this time. We know we need five minutes to do X, Y, and Z, and we also only need to do this one portion of the flo- of the of the uh, of the dialogue that matches up. Like, I, I I understand it's complicated, but it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like that impossible. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? Like, not to like downplay the art here, but like, right, 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 right. Like, I mean, you have got a control over a lot of factors here. That you can like, you can exert control over to make it do what you want it to do. Yeah, I mean a helicopter um, would be easier because right, it can just right, stay right. right there off camera and then come in when it's supposed to. Um, but even then, like a helicopter needs lead time to like start moving at yeah. speed. So even then, yeah. you need to give it a cue early enough to say like, "Hey, you need to start flying towards us now." Right. I mean, the thing about yeah. an airplane is it just has to circle. That's the issue is that it, it can't stop moving. But right. But going back to Cattleback as Godot as God. Uh, yeah, having him it be, were... maybe be a plane is like, like Dickie's convinced that like, yeah, it's Cattleback coming to save me. It's like, does Cattleback have access to plane resources? Like, Dickie yeah. has well, Dickie... Cattleback as like a godly like figure in his mind, right? Cattleback well, can Dickie... do anything. Dicky, when he thinks that it's Cattleback, also thinks it's a helicopter. Right. Uh, and God showing up on a helicopter is also uh, the ending of Through a Glass Darkly. Uh, the, right. the The Bergman film is uh, where where the helicopter becomes a uh, a, a, a godlike figure in the final moments. Right. Um, instead of Spider God uh, in the wall. Anyway. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. It's finding out that there's a waiting for Godot connection here is just so weird for what movie we get. Right. And yeah. What, yeah. What still lasts from a waiting for Godot interpretation. Right, it's like the sort of like the vestigial elements of it. Yeah. yeah. It's just it makes it it makes interpretation just incredibly weird. Donald Pleasance, I sent this I sent this to you. Uh Donald Pleasance uh once described Polanski, Polanski. as what was the exact wording? Let's pull it up. 
Yeah, you might as well get uh, the real quote because yeah. the real quote is pretty pretty fascinating. Yeah. Said Polanski was an average Hollywood type megalomaniac, an unsentimental, restless young man. He was also about twenty IQ points brighter than most directors. Uh which which starts out as uh <laughs> I don't know, it just ends as the most backhanded compliment that Donald Right, Pleasant's yeah. Damn with faint praise kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 It's, more, it's, it's more, not praise at all tell you, at the start. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, no, not at all. And then more seems to tell you more about Donald Pleasant's view of directors writ large than it does about Polanski. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's weird. I wonder when... I wonder when Pleasant said that. It's it's also weird, you know. My really, really, my only exposure to Donald Pleasant is uh, Halloween. So, like, I have, <laughs> I have little. Uh, I'm trying to think about my exposure. I, I know Donald Pleasant. I know the face. I know. Yeah. I have no idea where I know him from, though. Like, he's maybe, in. I. You might know movie? him from The Great Escape. Oh, that's probably it. You're probably yeah. right. Yeah. Um. I mean, he's also Blowfield in. At least one Bond film. There is that too. It's probably a yeah. combination of those things. Probably a sort of like amalgamated version of him, frankly. Yeah, but I always just think of him as Loomis, Loomis in Halloween. So, um, uh, this will be this will be another moment. Hopefully, I remember. Uh, yeah, hopefully you, you build a slightly more complex view of him, like mentally. Yeah, maybe. As a result. I also have a uh, a quote from Pleasant on the meaning of cul-de-sac. Okay. Uh, which I find interesting. This is from uh, a Times UK uh, interview in 1983. Um, <laughs> I love this. I love this. The essence of that film is what you read into it, not what the director puts into it by way of fancy cutting. He goes on and says, it was a straightforward film in the sense that it could have happened, like Waiting for Godot. The weirdest thing are the the weirdest things are those which bear a resemblance to the truth. Uh, I just like Pleasant's flatlight saying, flatlight saying, flat out saying, "Death of the author." Um, yeah, no, I, I find that like fascinating yeah. from a from a, an actor in a film to be just like, yeah, yeah. this movie, is whatever you think it is, man. Let's movie means it. whatever you think it was doesn't by way of fancy cutting. I don't know, just a little dig at. at <laughs> the at the editing. editing too yeah yeah <laughs> i don't know uh, yeah i wonder um, was like was well you said that he i mean like yeah so i mean like he famously didn't get along with um polanski yeah wonder what pleasant's actual like sort of extending from their feeling about the movie is as a final as a final product you know maybe he doesn't particularly like it or doesn't like the way people read it you know, yeah, I don't it's know. It's just interesting to think about because that does sort of sound like a kind of like the thing you would say about a movie. It's like, look, I did not. That's not the movie I made. Kind of, you know what I mean? Kind of yeah, feeling a, a little bit. It's weird because you know he's while planting complaints about him stealing scenes, he is the star of the movie too, right? You know, he's right. Yeah, it's and it's, and I don't you know at least doesn't read like he's stealing scenes on the on on the final right. cut, right. Um, you know, considering he's the last actor on screen, he gets, you know, it's, it's his film, uh, in so right, many right, ways. Right. right. Um, 
in a in a tight movie anyway with with not a lot of people on screen most of the time uh and Polensky's script not really caring about Teresa all that much for the majority of the time right uh yeah I don't I don't know um it's it's George's emotional journey is the plot of the movie right exactly so it, it, and you know, especially with Dickie sort of set up as just more of a, a someone to reflect George's like change on, right? right? Like, right. Dickie exists exclusively to move George, you know, through the journey. Absolutely, so. yeah. And and you know, in as much as there is a class politic in this movie, it is the story of a wealthy man who gives up everything in vanity. Right, he he chases right. for for vanity in both the uh, the older meaning and the newer meaning. Uh, one, he is vain, and two, all for nothing. Uh, right, he, uh, you know, he he loses everything. I just you know, at least the castle's not on fire. At least the car didn't blow up and set the castle on fire. I guess. Yeah, but, I mean, I felt like the the movie could have certainly done that. It could have certainly yeah. gone that way. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> also, I suppose in the end, he's trying to drown himself, but the tide's not in is kind of interesting, right? <laughs> but just even nature won't let him do that. But, uh, I suppose the tide should be in by that time. Uh, who knows? Anyway, time again, again. time makes time, no sense of this movie time now, in this really. <laughs> Like this is a movie about a tidal island that uh, doesn't understand that tides are on a schedule. <laughs> but, right, right. Like it's like he's like. Even we get into a scene that, like towards the end, right with the on the beach, where it's like, well, when's the tide coming in? Like Diggy's or uh, George's like, I don't know. I got to check the almanac. It's like, like these things don't move that radically far. Yeah, you have, from day you have to day. a general idea, George. Yeah, like you <laughs> maybe can't name like the exact minute, but you get pretty close. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, the <laughs> idea that George is totally disconnected from his own island in like that in that practical way of like having no idea when the tide comes in is, is weird. Yeah, is a, there is, is also touch the young guy who Teresa is sleeping with. Uh, right, his parents. Uh, in in the early scene where we see his parents, because obviously he comes back later, but his parents don't come back later. Right. Um, I think his dad says something about the the island never really getting dark. Uh, yeah, he's like talks about well, doesn't somebody else mention like weird light or something somewhere too? Yeah. Like, and like the island is northern England, but northern England is not. It's not Arctic daylight north. north. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. It's cold, yeah. The North Sea is cold. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, he talks about it never really getting dark, and I maybe that's just a justification for it never really being night um, in a lot of our outdoor scenes. Right, right. But, well, like, night seems to be ex- in exceptionally short in this story, right? Like, we, we're burying um, <clears throat> Albie at night, right? Like, yeah. initially. But then it's daylight by the time like George is out there digging the hole. Like, yeah, by the hole, time George know? is with them, it should be it still it still should be dark night. Uh, That's what I mean. It seems to be morning twilight. Yeah, right. 
time seems to pass however they want it to pass in the movie. Like it, it, it is fascinating in that way. Like it's like it does not have seemingly does not have a linear time. Uh, yeah, and also being shot in black and white, like when the plane flies over, I it's just as bright as any other time they're outside, basically, yeah, despite absolutely. the fact that yeah. that uh they say that it was filmed at dusk and is apparently set at dawn, but still But yeah, uh, they don't they, they don't bother to make the the they don't bother to change the light in the film at all, right? Like it's yeah. just yeah, it's it's very that part is very strange. It's like, yeah, finding out that was at dusk, I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, the whole film appears to have been shot at exactly the same time, with yeah. a few, with the exception of a few actual night scenes that look like night. And honestly, like there's no, except for Polanski being Polanski, uh, just put a filter on. You don't need to film that at night. You don't need to right. film that at dusk, like. Could have done that at nine a.m. You'd been fine. <laughs> yeah, no, no reason to make this that with as hard, dark right? as, with as dark as it is. Wait for the clouds to roll in. It's northern England; they're never gone. So <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, what sky? What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So this is. Last week we were dreading watching a Polanski because we always dread watching a Polanski <laughs> because not even the water did not. Did not start. It us really off put well. us off to a bad start. Yeah, uh, and you know, I've not, I've not been super. In, for me, Polanski has never justified the uh, predominant Hollywood opinion of Polanski. Exactly, uh, that's what I'm saying as well. Yeah, obviously, I live in a world where Polanski has always been in exile uh, my entire life. So. Everything I know about Polanski is uh, hewed with that. Uh, right. <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, but half the people who signed that petition also have lived most of their life in that position, right? Like, right, right, right. Yeah. Like, we're not talking about 75 year olds here. We're no. talking about yeah. like 40 somethings and 50 somethings. Like, right. most of their adult, their career life, he was like already in exile. So, yeah. I don't know. Like, like Woody Allen's the oldest person I think on that whole list, and of course Woody Allen signed it. Yeah, I mean that's not surprising. Yeah, you gotta you gotta <laughs> you gotta cover for your bros. Yeah. Ah, uh, but yeah, Woody Woody Allen's a you scratch my bike, I scratch yours thing. Exactly. Uh, like well, Woody we need Allen to make knows sure the, that this is Woody Allen knows the other shoe is going to drop at some point. Yeah. Uh, Woody Allen is essentially just buying time, hoping that it doesn't drop until after he's gone. Basically, yeah. at this point. Yeah, he's very close. Uh, but, but yeah, so I don't know. Anyway, it wasn't as bad as I was afraid it would be. So I'll I give mean, them that. And, I, and, and, it, and there was a whole sec- extra level of psychological terror for yeah. me in the movie because I was like, okay, well, it's about a kidnapping and there is a woman present. So right. God only knows what go he might do to us yeah. over the course of this and, film. And never did. Like no. And for that, That's, I am I'm yeah. I'm really grateful. Like, Polanski, I, you surprised us. Uh, good job. There's no there's uh, there's no sexual assault in this movie. I don't. I was like, I was deeply concerned for most of the movie. At some point, probably about like 70 percent of the way through, I was like, oh, it's just not going to happen. Okay, like we've yeah. 
the movie, the sort of the cast of the movie has been set. Like it's not going to change. So we're yeah. relatively speaking safe. Um, uh, one other, one other thing. I don't know if it is in the original script uh, as a character decision to have Dickie eat raw eggs so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first one yeah. he eats out of desperation, right? He is right. he is injured. He's been up all night. He gets into the building. The only it food is, he can find it is are technically the food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but he also tastes the omelet while he's beating the eggs to make sure it's seasoned correctly, which is an insane thing to do. <laughs> well, okay. Here's the thing: movies made in a different time. Salmonella yeah. and eggs was not a thing yet. Fair. My understanding are, is people were just eating raw eggs like fucking crazy until salmonella are, was discovered. In they eggs. are fresh eggs that have gone directly into a refrigerator, so salmonella very low chance anyway. Uh, <laughs> incredibly low chance, in fact. Uh, so not something to worry about. Uh, it did come up uh, in one of the bonus or the essay. I can't remember where that uh, one of the ways that Polanski got back at Lionel Stander for being a jerk uh, was to reshoot the scenes where he ate eggs Jeez. and drank milk over and over again to just make Stander drink so much milk and eat so many raw eggs. Uh, and So weird. Everybody's so toxic. Everyone, yeah, they're all just such horrible people. It's it's unbelievable. Amazing that they made the that they finished the movie. Honestly, Uh, well, so like my thing about this is is that like my impression is is that that not only does Polanski keep making movies about the struggle for dominance in male male relationships, Polanski also seems to try to actively enact it in real life. Yep, like he sees the real world that way. And and interacts with his coworkers in that capacity, and like that sounds like a fucked up way to live your life. Yep, like that's that's some fucked shit right there, man. So yeah, one hundred percent. Ah man, well let's pull this one to a close. We've been talking about Cul de Sac from nineteen sixty six, the third film directed by Roman Polanski. Uh, we've got more Polanski in the future, as I said at the top of the show, but not for a while. Over a year. Next week, uh, something a little different. We will be talking about the first part of the complete Jean Vigo. Uh, Vigo made four films, uh, only one really feature length. Um, So next week, uh, we'll talk about his three shorts, Apropos de Nice, uh, Tari, and Zero de Conduit. And then the week after will be our holiday special. And then we'll come back and finish up the complete Jean Vigo with La, La Atalante, uh, which I also am very much not pronouncing correctly. But uh, look forward to that. They seem like they're going to be interesting. Uh, Criterion Shore threw a lot of stuff on those discs, though. So Yeah, really, just like we're only going to have this one disc, and that's it. Or these two discs, and that's it. Yeah. Never again. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's no real reason to justify putting out more Vigo other than this. He I only made that, this all the work he made, but, uh, but yeah, it's still it's got a lot of bonus features, including a 90 minute television episode, just <laughs> crazy. Um, but yeah, so uh, look forward to figuring out what that's all about. Uh, yep. Yeah. 
We'll see that next week. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. been listening to Lost in Criterion with co-hosts The Adam Glass and John Patrick Oitari Dorgan. With the collapse of Twitter, who knows what social media we might end up at. How about Blue Sky? That sounds great. Check out the official podcast account at lostincriterion.bsky.social. Jonathan Hape does our music, and you can check out more of his work at jonathan-hape.com or on any music streaming service. And you probably should. He's pretty good. A big thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can join their ranks at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. And hey, thank you for listening.